Hello and welcome to Unravelings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark. And I'm Charlene. And this week we're continuing our conversation about Steven Universe. This is part two of two. I would recommend that you go and listen to part one first if you haven't done already. But you probably can listen to just this one. Yeah. The first one we talked more about identity and things on like the individual scale. And this week we'll be talking more about the larger scale of the universe of Steven Universe and the larger scale social implications and things like that. Just in case you are listening to just this episode and are not terribly familiar with Steven Universe or need your memory refreshing, we're going to be doing the original TV series, the film, and the Steven Universe Future series that they did. It follows a young child who is half human and half weird alien gem rock thing. He has special powers, his alien mother gave up her physical form to create him, and with her friends the Crystal Gems uh, helps to protect Earth and such. So before we get into it at all, we'll do a quick bit of spoiler warnings here. We will obviously be spoiling the entirety of the Steven Universe, the Steven Universe movie, and Steven Universe Future. If we have any other spoiler warnings that are more precise on other things, or any content warnings, we'll drop those in right here. We're a very small uh, spoiler from the early period of the TV show Legion. We also have a very small spoiler from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. We don't really have any content warnings. Uh, we do... At a couple points, touch on trauma and post-traumatic stress experience of war, but not in detail, more as an idea. Okay, and back to the past. Welcome back. So, just in case you didn't listen to last week's episode, but want to push on with this one anyway, we'll do a very brief synopsis. Steven Universe is a cartoon about a gem-human hybrid, and gems are an alien species that create their bodies out of light from a gemstone. Steven is the first such hybrid ever to be made because his mother gave up her own existence in order to create him. The show makes a lot of use of tropes from Magical Girl anime and other cartoons of the last 20 or so years, and starts off with the protagonist pretty young, and then as he grows up, we learn more about the history of the world and the war of colonization, essentially, that was perpetrated on Earth before he was born. Which will be the focus of this episode. Yes. So over the course of the show, he is essentially trying to correct a lot of the lingering damage as much as possible of that war, um, which is more of the part we'll be talking about compared to the aspect in the first episode where we talk more about the sort of lingering emotional and interpersonal stuff that is being addressed throughout the show as well, also dating back to those same events. Yeah, cool. Okay, so I think to talk about how the dynamics of this world work, we ought to talk a little bit about the societies and the structures that are there within that world, so that we can talk about how those societies are interacting a bit. I think that with the humans, it's fairly standard. Yeah, um, it's pretty much the world we know with some minor tweaks that yeah. seem to be at least in some way influenced by the fact that, I don't know, it's unclear when it was, but at least a few hundred years ago, there were a whole lot of interstellar incursions on the planet that ended up destroying a lot of things and also in, also resulted in the installation of a bunch of alien environments on different parts of the planet. And the show does use having that element of the human society that is very much like ours as a nice way to just independently of anything else 
critique it a little bit. I mean, some of it is just sort of set up as parody. I mean, you know, you have these sort of landmarks like Empire City that are clearly just intended to be wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's a large city, probably New York. It's definitely New York because on the way there, you pass New Jersey and they specifically call out New Jersey. There's a nice drive-by that I feel you probably appreciated when we saw it. I think on how rude people are on the road or how it smells or something about it. It's definitely negative. Yeah. And also it's called Empire City. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But you do see the map of the world and there's definitely some major changes. Like there's a huge ocean in the middle of a continent that is not interrupted in that way, you know, in our reality, etc. So like clearly some major changes and damages were wrought upon the earth a few hundred or a thousand years ago or something when uh, the diamonds first tried to take planet yeah but i mean within the uh, sort of social side of the world there's definitely like as the show goes on some like bolder and bolder critiques to some of the current things going on i think that there might be a uh, couple of references where it's kind of like referencing something effectively that trump has done and being like but why would you do something like that that would be stupid um, i can't think of a particular instance can you can't think of an exact one if we can find one, we'll put it in the show notes. I do appreciate that at one point, the mayor, who's been the mayor from the beginning of the show, ends up losing the election because he's completely ineffective. And his only argument for why people should vote for him is basically because it's so central to his identity that he's the mayor and he doesn't know what else he would do. Whereas someone else in the community who is respected and, you know, an older woman with a lot of experience is the one who's, like, actually having ideas and coordinating people to handle things that are going wrong. And so she ends up getting uh, elected the mayor because she actually has the support of the community because, you know, she's actually engaged and active. She doesn't, whereas Mayor Dewey, the only engagement you really see of him is him driving a van with his face on it, trying to garner up votes. The eternally screams from its sirens, vote for Dewey. Mm-hmm. Which, like, that's a great example of what I'm talking about, is that I think that Mayor Dewey is a really great critique in a kid's show of some of the issues with the political system. Definitely. I feel like it was an early... Like, they called Biden, like, way early. Because that was always my issue with Biden, is that the impression I get from his campaign is that it's not about the country. It's about having that cherry on top of his political career. And because it's something he has always wanted. And it was the same thing with Trump. It's something he wants because of the prestige and because it looks good and because you get a lot of attention for it. And I I don't think that's the reason you should go into political office. I mean, you can see exactly like the difference in value with someone like Bernie Sanders who did not stop running per se but suspended his campaign because he didn't think that it was right to get people to go out on mass during the coronavirus pandemic and especially given the delegate chances like that it was irresponsible and because that's a person who recognizes that it's not about him ultimately it's about the ideas and what can be accomplished for the country with the support of the community and if you're putting community and country at risk in doing so then you're not doing it for the right reasons sure i don't know how much of that we want to keep if we are keeping that though i do want to say that elizabeth warren was actually my first choice but i also really like bernie sanders point being it's the difference between why are you doing this are you doing this because you want it you want the prestige or are you doing this because you actually think that your that your voice and your perspective on issues is going to be reflective of the community you're serving and the needs of that community. It's a fairly minor thing. It's interesting to me that they have the 
human society be a nice little critique on certain elements there in a kid's show. But I think more importantly is the germ society that we see. Yeah, that's very clearly like an authoritarian regime that ends up because of ultimately the change in political orientation of one of the ruling council ends up being turned around to be a more more democratic but not really it's not terribly clear it ends up being sort of a republic kind of yeah i think so anyway ends up very much trying to dismantle that existing an extremely hierarchical power structure because someone near the top is like this is wrong the way we're handling things is wrong and exploitative we can get into exactly what happens that later on i think with the course of it but i think uh like i think there's probably an argument that says it does become a democracy or at least a democratic pub. But it's an interesting society that they built. And I mean, Rebecca Sugar has this opportunity to create whatever sort of society or social structure she wants to in creating this story. You know, you're writing an alien race, one of the reasons you do it is because you can decide that they are this, that, and the other. And if people say, well, humans wouldn't act that way, you go, they're you're, not you're right. <laughs> That's why they're aliens. Um, that, which means that it gives a lot of room for you know, symbolism in how you're designing that society. And the society that she designs is one in which effectively your birth defines your life and your purpose and if you don't like that in any way tough yeah which is very reflective of the world we're living in right now people like to tell themselves the story of upward mobility but the data doesn't lie and upward mobility has been going down and the the socioeconomic status of your parents is a huge predictor of your own financial success the more affluent your parents are, the more likely you are to be middle class or higher. And most social mobility at this point is down. Yeah, we'll find some data to back that up and put it in the show notes. But at least from most of the things that was coming up when I was working on my MSW recently, upward mobility right now is not particularly strong. Worth noting that we're talking about this with a British and American point of view of the world. I don't know. What I'm the... talking about the United States. Yeah, I don't know what the stats are in the world, but I think Rebecca Sugar is also talking about the United States. So yeah. So while there's this idea that you can be anything you want, people like to think that like practically speaking, that's not true for a lot of people. That's the real death of the American dream. Right. And even more interesting to me than this idea, like, if you don't like your place in life, then tough, is what you were saying about, it's not just that your place in the society is defined for you from the moment you're born. It's not even that, but it's that your entire identity is your job, your role in the society, and you don't matter outside of that. And if you're not perfectly suited to the thing you were literally made and designed to do, you're considered defective and not desired or included in the society at all. Yeah. So there's there's a verse in one of the songs, which we talked about last week, that Rebecca Sugar uses music to do a lot of very elegant storytelling in terms of very complicated emotional arcs. But one song that's sung by one of the diamonds, who's one of the ruling like for Diamond Authority, is singing a song where one of the verses is just her listing what certain gems are for. And in an attempt to try and convince her uh, fellow Diamond to stop grieving the loss of one of them and start doing her job, essentially kind of calling her, her out, the other Diamond, for not living up to her role in the society. And just the reductiveness of that 
Yeah. Reminds me so much of our society, of of capitalism in particular, and like so-called developed countries or whatever, where pretty much everyone, when introduced to a new person, gives their profession as essentially like shorthand for who they are as a person. So people ask, what do you do? And you say, I am a th- my job. And I think that's very tied into the huge hit people take to their self-worth and their sense of self-esteem when they lose their job or they're struggling to succeed or break into the career that they ultimately want to be working in. And so when they, because we've wrapped our identity so much with our job, we can't be happy if we're not happy in our jobs. And we're told that we're failing in life in general if we're not filling the role that we think we're made to fill in our society, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, those are some good points. And I think it really, really highlights what our society has value in because it's not just what's your job. Like, it's not just asking what you do. It's always what do you do for a living, which someone might spend every moment that they're not at work feeding the homeless and building houses and working on climate change and cleaning oil off of baby seals. Um, But if you say, what do you do for a living? And they say, I'm an accountant. You've decided you know who that person is. And not only that, but there's so many value judgments because of like the effective caste system we have in our cultures. But I know this is true both in the US and in the UK, where there are some jobs that are considered a hallmark of an upper or lower social strata. You know, you have working class and you have white collar and you have blue collar, which is also sometimes like working class. But you know what I mean? Like people also think they know where you fit in a level of society based on your job. Like there's a definite tier system that some people don't like to acknowledge because it's frankly bullshit and like everybody's inherent value as a human being, no matter where they work, basically. I think that might currently be considered a politically controversial comment to make. Oh, that everyone (laughs) has intrinsic human worth Mm -hmm. and um, should not be considered disposable? That should not be controversial. But Charlene, the economy. (sighs) Yeah, the economy. The economy is all... Like, it's a collectively agreed upon fantasy. It is a placeholder to reduce endlessly complicated systems of barter to be somehow less complicated, but we have made it far more complicated than it needs. Anyway, we could go on like this, but I'm not going to. Point being, people think that they know how valuable a person you are based on whether you do like a blue collar or a white collar job. Right, and I mean, that's reflected as well in that you have um, someone like a Sapphire in the uh, Steven Universe world where, um, you know, she can see the future and she's portrayed as this dainty little thing in a dress that yeah. is, you know, at at the right hand of diamonds because, of, of course, they can see the future and things. And uh, Bismuth, who's considered, I guess, like the equivalent working class type of gem, calls refers to Sapphire as an upper crust. So there does seem to be this idea that there are upper crust gems, which might be an allusion to like upper crust of a planet Mm. in terms of where they're grown, but it also might not. But yeah, like she refers to, Bismuth refers to strata like that because she's uh, teasing Ruby about having essentially like dated above her weight class, essentially. Which is where I was going to go is that you have Ruby who is 
a bodyguard or a grunt who's mm-hmm. you know shouldn't even be speaking to a sapphire because there's so much above. So that's exactly what you're talking about with the yeah. white collar, blue collar stuff. Right, and I do think it's interesting that the main fusion that they choose to show in the show for a long time is Garnet, who is a fusion of an upper crust gem and a like lower lower class gem who was you know I think one of the phrases that bismuth uses another time to refer to like the lower tier of gems is made right in the dirt you know so you see you have this fusion of someone made right in the dirt and someone upper crust and they make this incredibly balanced and nuanced individual who is able to not just see a linear future which is all Sapphire could do. She could only, she would see a straight path of a future in a very predictable system of gems who all did their jobs as expected. To Garnet, who sees a crazy stream of forking paths of futures and is able to kind of discern what's most likely and what's less likely, etc. And make solid judgments with a a broader base, basically. I think that is a commentary on how you can't just have the one perspective if you really want to understand what you're looking at. Yeah. I think the other part of that that's really important is that it's not that the diamonds are saying, you are a pearl, you are a jasper, you are a quartz, therefore your job is this, and you have to do that. There's complete buy-in from them, except for a select few that we will get into in a minute. There's a such a pride taken in doing your job right. Yeah, and I think there's a part of that that's by design, right? Because the diamonds literally make the other gems, the, like, liquid collected off of them, that they, like, they basically do sort of a steam bath type of thing, and the whatever is extracted, the essence that's extracted from diamonds, is used to make other gems. It's injected in particular conditions to develop particular gems. So... They're creating what they need or what their anticipated need, and they are like calibrating what's going in to the recipe, as it were, to have a particular output. And this seem this is something that they've done for millennia, and they've refined the process considerably. So they know roughly, I mean, they know fairly precisely what they should get as a result when they're planting the new generation of gems. Yeah. I think as far as um, the storytelling around that goes, they use, I think, two groups to really highlight that as well. Because, I mean, if you just had that society and everyone seemed perfectly happy, then you wouldn't have the room to question it as such. You'd just be like, oh, well, that's an alien race and that's how they are. Um, you have the Crystal Gems, obviously, which are a rebellion, but I think that they're a bit more complex and we'll get into that in a little bit. But I did want to talk about the off-colours that we meet when... Uh, Stephen and Lars have visited Homeworld. Right. They would be one of the examples that we alluded to where if you're not perfectly as designed, if you didn't come out the way that they expected, then Then, you're disposable. Yeah. And I mean, in some of those cases, it's, well, you don't look right or you don't act exactly as we expect you to. And therefore you're wrong and you're ostracized because you're an other. And then in other situations, I mean, there's the, um, it's like Sapphire, but not... Oh, oh, yeah, the Padparasha, the, the pink sapphire. Yeah. Who is late on versions. Yes. Um, Padparasha. Rather than, as a sapphire does, predicting what is about to happen and warning people, warns people about the stuff that happened a few seconds ago. 
which is considerably less useful. But hilarious. It is hilarious, but it also, it's essentially like the only gem disability that we see. Right. And we see that in their society, they have no room for anyone who has a disability and isn't able to perform the function they were designed for. Like, they're literally discarded. Yeah. The, the society looks at them and goes, no, we don't have a use for you. Right. Um, and there's no accommodation made. And I... I wouldn't be surprised if that is an intentional reflection of right. our world where we, except we say we have accommodations for it, but we really don't. And we really just try and sideline as much as we can. Yeah. Um, which is wrong, which is what we're saying. Yes. Like, we yes. do not think that's okay. Like, not enough is done to enable full participation in society for everyone, regardless of their ability status. It's very disheartening to hear people grumble, as I have done at various points in my professional and adjacent time about having to do stuff to meet ADA requirements and that's how they take it it's oh we've got to well we have to do this because we've got to meet these requirements not we should do this because it would be good for people in our society yeah and it's not even just it's everybody it's everyone who seems to find accommodations that might mildly inconvenience other people who don't need them, who seem to just feel so put out that they have to be a little considerate. Like, you told me before about people who will, like, plug their phone charger across an aisle, like a ramp. Yep. That is supposed... that The ramp that is there for wheelchair access and accessibility for people who can't handle stairs and strollers and things like that and people do not understand why it's a problem that they have put a trip cord across it. Yeah. Which is honestly a bad thing for anybody, but in particular makes the ramp totally unusable. I mean, it's not great for your phone if I'm going to go and jump up and down on top of it. I still don't really understand why people think it's okay to just plug their phone in the store and sit down and chill out. You wouldn't do it in a Target. But anyway, that's not the point. Yeah, point being, like, when I was a residential counselor, we had a child on the unit at one point while I was there who was severely allergic to peanut butter, and we were reminded of existing protocols that we were supposed to be following anyway, because you never know, sometimes kids have allergies that you don't know about yet, but, like, things like if you're making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you cannot use the same knife, because you might transfer peanut butter into the jelly, like, container or whatever, etc., and you can't have certain, like, we couldn't bring candy that contained peanut butter in because of the kids, you know, yeah. if they got into it or whatever, or if they traded something or anything. And people would be shitty about it. I'm like, oh, we can't, oh, right, yeah, we have to use a different knife. Like, yeah, you have to use a fucking different knife. Like, oh my god, like, this kid could literally die and go to the hospital. And you're, like, exasperated because I want you to clean a knife or use a second one. Anyway. Do people put the same knife in both? Lazy people and lazy children will try to. Because some of the kids are older and, like, you want to encourage them to be more self-sufficient. So you might take them into the kitchen area to make a sandwich and let, let them make it. But if they're doing that, you have to be like, okay, you have to get the jam first if you're going to use the same knife. And you really shouldn't do any anyway because we're not really supposed to cross-contaminate anything because you never know, someone could be allergic to grapes or whatever. Um, but yeah, you're supposed to wash it in between or use a different utensil, and people will get really exasperated about it. Because people um, suck. People do. Um, and I, I mean, I'm sure that you have a million stories from your brother as well. Oh yeah, definitely. But I don't um, know if you want to I, the, I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of the time, 
I've mentioned before, my brother has some mobility stuff. Sometimes he's good with walking for a little while, but he usually can't walk for a long period of time. And sometimes, you know, his joints just aren't where they need to be for that. And like, we've gone to places like the Renaissance Fair or museum or something like that. And we, it, you know, the sort of place you do a lot of walking. And a lot of the time we have to like have a plan in place for if he needs to use a wheelchair at some point or in t- for the entire day so that he can actually enjoy the activity. And like the Ren Fair, like you can get wheelchairs, but th- the area is not really designed for it, which I do kind of get. And that's fortunately one of the areas where you don't have to pay for a wheelchair, which sometimes we like, I'll just check and I'll just see so that we can be prepared to pay like $10 or whatever if we need it. But they only have, we'll have a couple, like some place, sometimes the place will only have one. And, you know, if someone else is using it, then too bad. Going back to the show and our earlier take that everyone has intrinsic worth, Rebecca Sugar is showing a universe where people don't see past that first part and just completely discard them from society. Like, they're, they're a group of people that are in hiding because if they're found, they'll be destroyed. Right. Um, it's making the subtext just the text of the universe, you know, subtext from our reality where the subtext being that you are your job, you are what you can provide to the society. And here, no, that's literally the case and you are nothing more than that. Right. I think it is the case that there there are people in our world who feel that way about people with any form of disability or who think, oh, well, if you can't go around a museum without a wheelchair, you should just not go to a museum because people are terrible. But the thing is, like, people tend to have those perspectives in the abstract when they're confronted with an actual individual who is interested in going to a museum but would need a wheelchair to do that. If they know, if they know that person, they will feel entitled on their behalf to the accommodation. It's it's when people are too far removed from our experience for us to, I think, really conceive of like their personhood that these like broad cruel generalizations are able to survive, I think, in people. Right, which I think is part of the problem that we have is that I think a lot of politicians have managed to make themselves so removed from the struggles of the everyday person that they don't have that understanding, can think of the average citizen in the abstract. And um, you get a representation of that with White in Steven Universe as well. Yeah. When she first appears, she has completely secluded herself. You cannot get in to talk to her. You cannot communicate with her. It's just a complete no-go. And society is just running based on what she has decided. Hundreds of years ago and never checked in or changed. I mean, even Blue and Yellow Diamond are just following her rules. Right. Blue and yellow being the other two remaining diamonds in the hierarchy who were actually pretty much running things yeah. during most of the show. And white is a very interesting piece of this in the orientation we were talking about before about your value being what you've been made to be. Because while it's not explicitly stated, it's heavily implied that white was the first gem and she made all the other ones. In the murals, her mural is the first. Like, there's a mural of the diamonds, and it shows all the planets um, that they colonized. And she has the most, and she's the first one. And you can theorize that she was the first one, and then eventually she made two other diamonds in order to help spread the gems throughout the universe. And then they made Pink Diamond, because she's clearly the smallest and the youngest. Was only given one colony that was Earth, and she didn't really do what they wanted with it. So she's implied to be the first. And she's also capable of literally taking over other gems and just suffusing them with her own personality and like completely blanking out their own will and thoughts. And given the fact that the other gems are made from like an extraction of the diamonds, 
there's sort of this implication that she only values the other gems because they're pieces of her that she's put out into the universe and they're pieces of her so she feels like she can and should be able to control them and they can and should do exactly what she expects and wants them to do and if they're not then they're wrong and they're part of her and if they're wrong she can get rid of them you know there's definitely this i think literal sense of ownership and complete authority over all the other gems which i mean they're called the diamond authority and i think that's reflective of that backing up a little bit but that ability to just take over whatever another gem is thinking or feeling like feels reflective in some ways to me of the way that people with a whole lot of money in our society feel like their voice is way more important than any other voice of anyone like lower in the social hierarchy than they are that they should just be able to pile on their voice in the form of money to just drown out whatever dissenting will there is in the littler people and like with something like citizens united where corporations can use money as free speech i mean i feel like the parallel there is pretty clear yeah i'm sure everyone who tuned in for a steven universe podcast was expecting us to bring up citizen united (laughs) for those people not in the u.s citizens united was a court decision that ruled that corporations can use money or that corporations count as people and thus they're they can donate to political campaigns yeah they can donate to political campaigns as part of an exercise of free speech yeah we'll put a link in the show notes with regards to like the whole ownership and just feeling like she can do whatever she wants with them and then to an extent with that image you're putting of the our social elites our social elites of money that i think you can make a similar contrast or comparison with slavery oh definitely Um, yeah as a total form of property. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if we look at the way that the gem civilization conducts itself within the universe, then those comparisons become that much more obvious as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you definitely see through the history of it that the Diamond Authority are a colonial government, basically. They spread out looking for new sources of natural resources to create more gems and build more infrastructure for gem kind and in the process completely strip their colonies of all of the resources that are necessary to sustain even gem production and in the process of gem production destroy any organic life that was native to the planet yeah and i mean i I want to loop back around colonialism but to just like take a tangent because you mentioned the whole resource issues them just stripping things like when we first see homeworld like it's literally bro- a broken planet because they have just overmined the whole thing right um, considering again the gem the process of making gems they drill really deep holes into the ground where they inject this stuff that they extract from the diamonds and whatever else they i don't know what else they mix in with that but that's definitely part of it they drill that stuff in deep into the ground in these grounds called kindergartens that are full of holes like that and then thousands of years later gems erupt in mass from the places where they were implanted yeah so we understand that they've done this to many planets and completely destroyed building planets as you mentioned including going to other planets and taking like pink diamond has got a quote zoo of like various life forms from other planets that she's kept but I think that it's worth noting how Steven Universe starts up as a TV show and like sort of the concerns that it has in those first couple of seasons while it's really finding its strength before it feels like it can be making messages about colonialism and capitalism and caste systems. 
I think it's like first larger world message rather than individual relationships message is about sort of environmental concerns and resource usage. Like the first big bad that they have to fight or are concerned about is the cluster, which we find out is a horrific mangled mass of like shards of gems that are growing together to make lots of large arms and things all twined together. But it's part of like the core of the planet and it becomes effectively the planet fighting back against this overuse of the resources. How is that the planet fighting back against the overuse of the resources? I mean, it's an embodiment with by having literally put a body into the planet. Well, I mean, it was a weapon they were hoping it would be anyway. Like, the diamonds implanted all the shards, hoping that they would form, like, that when they emerged, because it was so much of it, that it would break the whole planet as, like, a last fuck you to the earth because of dot pink. Right. But within the visual situation that you get of that and the concern of the planet dying, mm-hmm. like, you have this struggling planet that has been taxed, and you have arms coming out of it to attack you. I suppose. I don't know that I would read that as a statement on cons- conserving resources and sustainability. I-, I think that's more of a aftermath of and consequences of war, and how that's going to continue to complicate things and you know, hurt future generations. And maybe also the way that we treat veterans. Those are all things that I think are in there in various ways. It's not the first message that I get from those early seasons, especially because of the way that their set pieces around it are designed. They spend a lot of time travelling to beautiful places that are sort of crumbling in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see the kindergarten, and it is presented as such a sort of barren waste canyony area that's true i i do agree with you on that like the the i think that a show does definitely uh, make a point to show that the areas where the gems make their kindergartens and where the gems come out is a barren wasteland that nothing can grow in after that um after that process which is a point that um not only is one of Stephen and thus pink diamond's powers to make things grow and you see like the beauty of the gardens that she worked on and those are big set pieces as well but also uh, a little bit later Stephen and amethyst go back to the kindergarten where she was born and try to make things grow there unsuccessfully unsuccessfully because it's been stripped bare but it's an effort made within the show mm-hmm. to try and reverse that process mm-hmm. it's very much shown as a negative thing yeah i i agree with that and i i do think there's a lesson there in that when you do take an extractive mentality to an area for too long, there is a point at which it can't really recover in the way that you might one day want it to be able to. I could see it as a metaphor for fracking, especially considering that it's mm. an injection of a fluid deep into the earth that then disrupts the entire area for a very long time. And in the case of the cluster, which was a massive injection, does cause like earthquakes and tremors and has the potential to shatter the entire planet. Obviously, I think a single fracking operation, I'm not saying is going to shatter the planet, but I, I think that the, the parallels are there in that when you are doing intentional damage to the planet for your own extractive means, that you are destabilizing things far beyond your understanding. Yeah, and that makes sense with sort of the timeline of when the show started airing and started production and when fracking started being a more widely known issue. Yeah. Um, so we maybe I'm going too far in looping the cluster into it, but otherwise you agree with me? I can see where you're going with that, yeah. Okay, I'll take it. In terms of sustainable things and like just as a condemnation of a 
like resource stripping mentality and like not seeing an ecosystem as valuable in and of itself. I think that just the general orientation that the diamonds have, I think is is a pretty clear, like making a pretty clear stance against that kind of thinking in that the entire reason the crystal gems went really pink, pink diamond defects away from the diamond authority is because she sees the beauty in organic life. And she knows that the process of injecting gems all over the planet is going to completely destroy all of the organic life, all of the ecosystems, and that will be lost and will not be able to be replaced in any way. And because of that, she decides that she would rather defend the earth from the diamond authority than be a part of that machine. Yeah. And you know what? Going back to what we were talking about with the you are your role and you are what you were made to be. In a sense, Pink Diamond Rose Quartz makes sense as a revolutionary figure because she was the first person to validate other gems' desire to be different and do different things than they were designed for. She herself, though, still lived up to her designed role of leading other gems, being a leader. Because, I mean, if you go back to What's the Use of Feeling Blue, the verse that I was talking about before says a diamond is a leader. Yeah. It's interesting because we see a lot of dimensions of the pink diamond rose quartz situation, and you do get a lot of progression there. I find it kind of entertaining that... Like, a lot of the problems that they have with Pink is that she wants to do whatever she wants to do. Mm -hmm. But she was raised as a younger child in this civilization where she's told, you're one of the four most powerful people and we get whatever we want. Mm -hmm. And then they got upset with her for expecting to get whatever she wanted. Right. And also, like she, they made her to lead and then got mad when she decided to lead her division of the community in a direction they didn't like. But yeah, so it's interesting because, like, she, in doing what she was made for, she did that by telling other people they didn't have to do that. Yeah. Hmm. Speaking of colonialism before, you'd mentioned when we first see Homeworld, it's literally cracked, like, in half. Like, the planet is held together by its gravity, but it is not actually of a piece any longer. And it's clear when you're getting closer images that that's basically because they've riddled it so thoroughly with holes for making gems that it has no structural integrity it's basically a planet made of pumice and that's right and that's why they keep having to go to other planets and i think the the root of that is that gems are immortal and yet they keep making more of them and it's not terribly clear why they feel the need to continue to make more gems. Because they need larger armies to go and get the resources to make more gems. Right. But when nobody is dying, then... Unless they piss off white. Why do you need to continue to make more gems? My only theory would be that there, is, there are sometimes antagonists more suited to stand against them than humans were because humans definitely didn't have the technology to stand against the gem authority but and like their superior weapons spacecraft etc so you would there must be other wars that they were fighting but there aren't any going on at the time of the show at the time that steven goes and meets the diamonds because if there was that would have been the immediate rebuttal of like we can't when he's making the case that we can't keep going on as we have been colonizing and extracting everything from planet after planet after planet, destroying ecosystem after ecosystem to make more gems. 
and chaining everyone to the life we decided for them whether they want it or not. Like, that's not right. If he had been making that case and there was some intergalactic foe that the Diamond Authority was, like, under siege from, where where they had to continue to replenish their front lines, that would have come up, I feel, you know? So what it seems to me is maybe that happened at some point. Maybe at some point they had an adversary, but they clearly dominated them. And now they're just going on because it's how they've always gone on. And and I think there's definite parallels there to where we are now. If you want to talk about parallels, the Gym Society has the largest military in the universe, but no one that has actually any use for them to use it against. Right, right. Nobody is attacking them, clearly. But they have all these warships. They have a ship that can fire, that can destroy a sun or something. What was it? The, The one that Lars steals... Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, they have, like, plasma cannon things and whatever, the Sun Crusher or something like that. I forget what it is. Point being, crazy, crazy war machines and no noted adversary. Anyway, yep. sorry, go ahead. And huge numbers of corpses standing at the ready as well. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole, the only thing they made on Earth were two kindergartens full of quartz soldiers, um, a batch of amethysts and a batch of jaspers and carnelians. And those are infantry. And why the hell do they need infantry? Maybe there is a bigger foe and it just hasn't come up yet. Maybe there's like some, some lore or prophecy. Funny side. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Point being, it it seems gratuitous and there, unnecessary. There does seem to be a uh, commentary of the military-industrial complex in there. Somewhere Definitely. Somewhere. Right. And that's the parallel I'm seeing. It's like they've built up this crazy army and they feel like they have to continually increase their support of it. Much like our budgetary spending on the military and like it's it in comparison to the rest of the world. And yeah, we are involved in wars, but we don't actually need to be involved. We got ourselves into all of those wars. It's not like anyone is attacking us here. Yeah. And yeah, I know geopolitical stuff is more complicated than that. I'm saying we decided to be this global police peacekeeper-y role. And, and then complain about and it. And then complain about it. And that's not something any other country felt the need to do at this point in our timeline. So, But we continue to do it and continue to use it as a justification for allocating so much of our budget to military spending and so little of it to any sort of social programs that would actually increase quality of life for our people or for people anywhere else. Yeah. I think it's worth taking a moment to... Talk about the way that war is represented, both in its time and its aftermath. Mm-hmm. Fairly early on, we find them on like an old battlefield that's now covered in weird strawberry type things and butterflies. giant, giant strawberries and giant, giant butterflies that keep yeah. going to Stephen's eyes. Yeah, and you know Stephen's image as a at that point effectively a small child of like hearing about the idea of a battle is that sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of time spent from the Crystal Jones being like, no, war is war is bad. Right. Because um, they've actually been in a war and no. <laughs> right. And I think that you see some of that with Connie and her sort of thoughts about fighting. We talked about it a little bit last time where mm-hmm. she wants to protect, but she doesn't necessarily want to hurt. Right. There's that moment when she realizes her own capacity to hurt other people. It's all been theoretical up to that point, doing training and martial arts. and yeah. that, But then... When she actually hurts someone with it by accident, she finds it personally devastating, which makes sense. 
and is a good sign of her character. Yeah. Um, well, you also have that scene when Greg is explaining to Stephen what the gems actually are. Like, that... Because Stephen didn't really realize that they were part of an alien race that tried to colonize the planet. And that they had rebelled. And Stephen is like, oh, but they were the good guys. And Greg says, there's no such thing as a good war. Yeah. And that is, a, I think, a very great and very intentional line. It's like, it doesn't matter what side you were on. War is still not a good thing. It still has devastating consequences. It's still incredibly painful for everyone involved. And, you know, whether you're on the right side or not, the, the best war is the one you don't have to fight. It's much like any fight. I mean, that's why in martial arts, you're first taught to, you know, to try and avoid a fight. Yeah. I, I definitely really, I loved that line. I really appreciated it. He does come out with some amazingly deep lines for a kid's show and for that character. Yeah. And I, I do like what you were talking about. They're spending all this time, they go to that strawberry field full of giant weapons a lot. And also are constantly going around fighting the gem monsters that we later find out are the result of the war. They're gems who are corrupted in, like, essentially, like, the gem version of a bioweapon that was unleashed on the planet when the diamonds retreated. They sent out a blast that corrupted every gem left on Earth who hadn't made the evacuation order or was an enemy combatant. And, and wasn't standing behind Rose's and shield. And wasn't, ha like, the handful behind Rose's shield. And all of those became corrupted, didn't know who they were anymore, didn't have any emotional regulation anymore, and became monsters, basically. And so they're going around trying to subdue and contain all of those remnants of that war. And it reminds me of um, landmines that are all over our planet from yeah. wars that are long over. In high school, I was part of International Baccalaureate, and the International Baccalaureate program, a big part of what they do is fund um, landmine retrieval around the world. And my stepdad is a lieutenant commander in the Navy and joined the military to do explosive ordnance disposal, particularly underwater explosive ordnance disposal. And that tells you something about like the ongoing effort to you know try and remove these traces of hostilities, even hostilities that aren't ongoing actively anymore. But they like landmines from the Vietnam War are still killing people. Yeah. And in terms of the corrupted gems, I mean I feel like there's a pretty good commentary on like veterans and like the mental damage that people take when they are part of a war. Yeah, and I mean I think it's worth noting that when they're when the crystal gems are going around and taking care of these monsters, like, they're not killing them. They are effectively putting them into stasis in the hopes that they can be cured later, which turns out they can be, mostly. But the monsters that have been created have been created from gems on both sides. So mm -hmm. sometimes they're doing it with someone that they fought alongside, and sometimes it's someone they fought against. But either way, they're keeping them in stasis in that way. So there's A, a level of compassion for someone who's supposed to be your enemy, and B, just the emotional concept of having to deal with people that you might have fought alongside in that situation mm -hmm. encountering someone who you know but who doesn't know who they are yeah doesn't look like who they used to be doesn't know you and is trying to kill you yeah yeah i i could definitely see parallels there with like post-traumatic stress disorder particularly yeah. in the end where when they are treated they still hold some effectively scars like some 
physical reminders of what they were like as corrupted gems often its horns that they have and seems appropriate in terms of like inner demons you know of like sort of an indicator that you can never go back to the way you were before that experience you can be functional again but you will be changed by it and you will be different yeah i feel like that's true of any trauma not just living through war i mean you'd be the one to know in this that's what I'm saying. I think that I think that makes sense for any trauma, not just experience with war. Because of your experience professionally, not because of your deep experience with multiple traumas or something. <laughs> uh. Thanks for clarifying. I mean, you know, I think most people have experienced some degree of trauma because very few ideal lives are lived. I I am speaking in general as like, you know, from a social work and psychology perspective. Trauma leaves a mark. You can't unring that bell. Speaking of trauma, um, last week we didn't really talk about the trauma that Lapis Lazuli suffers as basically a prisoner of war because she is one of the homeworld gems. Even though she wasn't really directly involved in the war effort, she's not a soldier, but she was on Earth at the time of that battle and she, in the evacuation, ends up getting poofed and her gem is found by the crystal gems. Anyway, they take her gem and they put it on the back of a mirror to create basically a magical instrument or like a gem-powered instrument where you can talk to the mirror and it will show you what you ask it to show you. And so she's basically imprisoned, put to, I don't know, a sort of labor for thousands of years and eventually is released, but her gem is cracked at some point in that experience. And that leaves her unstable in a few different ways. Stephen's able to heal her gem and befriend her and win her over when she's initially very aggressive because she's trying to leave the planet and she views the crystal gems as the people who've oppressed her for thousands of years, having trapped her in a mirror. And pretty immediately after she leaves, she ends up getting captured by the Diamond Authority, who, because she's been on Earth for a really long time, also put her in prison. So she's imprisoned by the Crystal Gems for thousands of years, and then she's imprisoned immediately after she escapes by the Diamonds, and they bring her back to Earth because they think she can be an informant on what's going on on the planet right now. She, at one point, like, when that ship crashes, she refuses to be rescued because she's given up on anything. Like, she, and she thinks that if she tries to escape, she'll be punished by the Diamonds for escaping. She ends up escaping anyway, and when a sometime antagonist gem, Jasper, wants to fuse with her because she's very powerful, um, so that they could together take on the crystal gems, she does, but not to help Jasper, to subjugate Jasper. And she realizes that she, in that situation, has the capacity to oppress somebody else. And I find that very interesting for a lot of reasons. We see that after that experience, she never wants to fuse with anyone again. She finds it very traumatic. At one point, Jasper comes crawling back, like wants to fuse with her again because Jasper misses how powerful of a fusion they were because Jasper is also a very powerful soldier and wants that expanded capacity and strength because Jasper values herself through her strength. And Lapis won't do it because she is horrified at her capacity to hurt somebody else and to oppress someone and trap somebody the way that she herself had been imprisoned. There's a book by Paolo Freire called Pedagogy of the Oppressed that we read as part of my MSW program. 
And one of the things that it talks about fairly early on is that when you are oppressed, sometimes you can fall into a trap of thinking that the best thing to do when you're not oppressed, like the way to become not oppressed, is Mm -hmm. to oppress your oppressor instead. Mm -hmm. And that's what Lapis does. She is oppressed, and then she oppresses the symbol of her oppression, which is the court soldier, who was like the ranking officer on the ship that dragged her back. And Jasper, who has been described multiple times as like the perfect quartz soldier. She's the ideal quartz soldier, perfect in every way. She's the symbol of the diamond military, basically. She's embodying the boot that was on Lapis's neck, (sighs) you know? And when given the chance, she views her her chance at freedom as oppressing her in turn. Mm -hmm. And that's not real freedom. You're only changing your position in the system, but you're still in that same closed system. And when you hurt someone else, you are also hurting yourself. You are not allowing yourself your full potential and capacity to do good in the world. You are not you are falling into the trap of thinking that those are the only two choices and they're not. You can break completely out of that and do something different. And ultimately, she decides that she's never going to be in a fusion again because she can't trust herself. She can't trust that she, who's been hurt and views relationships as being toxic in that way where one person is powerless and one person is powerful. Like, she doesn't know how to be healthy in a relationship because of that trauma that she experienced. Yes. I think that is interesting for a lot of reasons. And I I mean, I can harp on it a bit, but the uh, fact that Again, it's one of those things where it's shown in a kids' show, and I know I don't feel like the majority of kids' shows have that much depth of possible reading. Maybe I'm not watching enough kids' shows, but and you'd be surprised. There are a lot of kids' shows that are intentionally working in larger messages. Yeah, and I think that it's easy to often assume, like when I watch a Pixar film and there's a sex joke in there, I'm like, well, that's in there for the adults. When I see something that depicts the results of a traumatic relationship particularly one that involves the abuse of power within a intimate partnership in some way. I feel like maybe that's planting a seed that's going to help someone have a much healthier relationship later in their life. Yeah. Or at least spot a dangerous one. Yeah, and I do think that that is part of it, but I also think it's reflective of the experience that Lapis has had in the larger system, where she's learned that in the world of the diamonds, you are extracting the resources or you are being, you are the one being whose life is being killed off. You are the prisoner or you are the imprisoner. Yeah. And I think it is important that we see a growth from that character over time as she does become more comfortable with people in general. But the fact that that's not a quick change. And even at the end of the the final season, like it's, She's not still massively comfortable with things, mm-hmm. but she can express her emotions much more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, like, I think halfway, two thirds of the way through the original Steven Universe, there's a point at which, like, it looks like the diamonds are going to come back down to Earth and, you know, her assault is, okay, gonna go live on the moon. Yeah. Um, yep. She takes her stuff and goes to the moon. Yeah. It's like, you, you, you can, we, we can defeat them. We can, we can keep you safe. You're like, nope. That they are terrible, they have been terrible to me in the past, they will be terrible to me again. If I'm still here, I'm not going to be here. Yeah. And just fight and flight, it's not a question. She's like, I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, and and I like that they do show that, because she was, she's was she been severely traumatized. She's been indoctrinated her entire life to believe that the Diamonds are the ultimate authority, they're all powerful, there's no way that they have a chance against them. 
especially since, as far as I know, at that point in time, they don't have a diamond with them. So, so in her view, they're, like, impossible odds. They have no chance. She's basically asking to get captured again, and she knows she cannot survive that. But then she does end up finding the strength to come back and help. She does. And that's important, too. But I do, I do like that they show that she leaves. It's sort of like them showing that Ron leaves in, in uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Yeah. That in an incredibly st- stressful situation, sometimes people don't think they can take it. And sometimes people lose their resolve. And sometimes they come back, and sometimes they don't. In both of those cases, they do. Because it makes a much better story. It does make a better story. But it, there's also an element of the putting your mask on first, too. Like, how helpful would Lapis have been to the operations if she'd been there panicking and doomsaying the whole time? It may have been better for everyone that she wasn't there. She tried, she legitimately was trying to leave because she didn't want to get, you know, captured. And she tried to convince her friends to flee with her, but she wasn't going to stay. She wasn't leaving because she knew she would hurt their, you know, preparations with her panicking. I'm not saying that. But ultimately, she might have, you know. Yeah. It is important to acknowledge what you can't handle. She couldn't handle it at that time, at least, you know. With talking about the arc of Lapis, I think it's interesting to take a look at Jasper as well as a character. They have a really interesting arc to me because it's such a shallow arc. I do think they could have done more with Jasper. Jasper turns up as this, like, perfect warrior who's extremely hot-headed and is pretty sure that the answer is to attack it and is extremely loyal to Pink Diamond, except for the fact that the answer to any problem is to attack it. Ah, okay. Extremely loyal to Pink Diamond, except for the fact that Pink Diamond, as far as Jasper knows, has been shattered. And Jasper blames, hilariously, Stephen and the Crystal Gems for that. But in future, we see a Jasper who's been restored after having been corrupted and understands that Stephen is to some extent Pink Diamond or has replaced Pink Diamond in some way and eventually gets to a point of doesn't want to progress, doesn't want to become a better person or anything. Like it, like everyone else is off at a little homeschool and Jasper is hiding in the woods destroying trees in a form of training. When Stephen goes out and trains, Jasper gets this begrudging respect that eventually becomes... After being shattered and then restored by Stephen, Stephen earns the respect that Jasper would give a diamond, and Jasper's response to this situation is to pledge allegiance to Stephen. Jasper becomes an image of an individual who can't break out of their programming. Like, they're always going to follow that set of rules. And you know what? I think that there are some interesting parallels between Jasper and like the model minority mm. phenomenon, because Jasper is from Earth. She's like the only perfect specimen to come from one of the Earth kindergartens. And she, well, I don't know, the most of the amethysts turned out okay. So the, because the two kindergartens, one was actually planned out really well, kindergarten one, where amethyst came out of, was well, well planned. And most of those soldiers turned out great. Amethyst emerged too late, which stunted her growth in a weird way that I guess has to do with gem morphology. But um, And so she was aberrant, but not because of any failing in the environment. Jasper's kindergarten, where all of the Carnelians and Jaspers came from, was haphazardly thrown together later in the war when they're trying to get more soldiers fast and didn't have a great place to put their kindergarten. So they kind of made do. A lot of the holes were all wonky and stuff, and you see when you see all the Jaspers and Carnelians that there's a lot more body variation among them compared to the Amethysts. But Jasper came out perfect, and so I think that there's definitely this element of 
coming from humble and stigmatized beginnings because she's from Earth, the planet that failed, the colony that failed. But she's the perfect one. She's the only one that's plucked out of that mass of amethysts and jaspers and carnelians that were grown on Earth and not kept at Pink Diamond Zoo, but is actually more integrated into the larger gem society of homeworld gems and other successful colony gems because she came out so perfect. So I think there's an element of adhering so strictly to what is expected of her and like the perfect soldier she's supposed to be and placing so much primacy on her, like her warrior capabilities and physical strength and allegiance to her diamond because she's trying to live up to that and can't give anyone any reason to, you know, look at her and be like, oh, that's right, you're from Earth. You're as as good as we can expect from that environment or whatever. Any other of this snide, microaggressive bullshit that minorities have to deal with, that women have to deal with, um, that anyone who's not perceived as, you know, the default white guy in our society sometimes has to deal with depending on the context they're operating in. So to me, it makes sense that she's got this massive chip on her shoulder, no pun intended, because she is waiting for someone to try and knock it off. And she is going to be ready to knock them down when they try. And that's why I think she's internalized so deeply that power is all that matters. That's why she she doesn't want to fuse. She views it as a cheat because she thinks you should be able to handle the challenge or the fight with your own capabilities. And it's only when she keeps encountering fusions as opposition that she's willing to try it. She's like, okay, well, if those are the rules now, fine, we'll play by those rules. I'll get someone to fuse with me. But initially what she wants is a one-on-one confrontation and she doesn't think it's right if it's not. Um, I think it's the same reason that she does end up swearing fealty to Stephen after he shatters her is Stephen shows that he has the actual like physical power capability to dominate Jasper in that way and like proves his diamondness to Jasper. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I kinda want to know what happens to Jasper like six months to a year after the end of future. Because it ends with Jasper wanting to go with Steven. Right. And Steven being like, No, this is this is what I need to do, it's not what you need to do. Doesn't Stephen tell Jasper to find her own life, basically? Like, I can't remember what the exact words were, but he's like, you need to find your own path, too. Yeah. You can't just be my perfect bodyguard person, because that's weird. (laughs) That's not the life I'm living. I'm not living a life where I need that. Jasper is stuck in the old hierarchy. In that old hierarchy, she knows where she belongs, and she knows how she can prove that she belongs there. But when that's not the system anymore... Jasper has no idea how to operate, and I think that's why, as you mentioned before, she goes around back... I keep using she because they do in the show. I know you prefer they for Jasper since well, the body is more ambiguous, but... I oh. know, it's one of those things of, like, the pronoun in the show is she, so you should use she. I just feel like the gems should be they's, but... Point being, I think that's why Jasper goes and lives in the woods as a hermit, destroying the environment as she was trained to do to prove herself as fit and capable and stuff um, because then she doesn't have to figure out what her place is in the new context and that's hard the whole gem hierarchy has been completely destabilized diamonds no longer at the top white diamond is now infusing her essence in other gems so that she knows what they 
like what their perspectives are and letting them control her and stuff. Yeah. You know, so the, the whole hierarchy is not what it was. Which is something I did want to talk about before we uh, wrap up is about how that authority structure and the caste system have changed when we get to the end of the series. What's the end of that arc? And I think that the the biggest telling point, and this is what we talked about earlier with whether it's a democracy or not, is that White Diamond is going through every member of the civilization and swapping places so that she can fully understand each and every individual. Breaking down that isolation that we talked about as a problem reflected in our own political system to begin with. Mm-hmm. And getting in touch with the people in the most literal sense. Right. And the di- other diamonds are using their abilities in opposite ways too. Like, um, it is fairly clearly pointed out toward the end of the show in particular that each of them has like a different sort of domain that they have the strongest influence on. And white is the mind. She can totally flood your mind with her mind and your mind won't be there anymore. Or, as we've just talked about, she can bring your mind into her body so she fully understands what you're doing and you can operate her body instead. Yellow was the general for the Diamond Authority and one of her abilities was to destabilize a gem and essentially, like, poof it instantly so that it had you had no body and then the gem had to reform after a while of soul-searching, basically, um, to figure out who you were seems like a very meditative process where you have to totally reevaluate your entire self and then you exist again. But she was able to do that. And now, at the end of the show, she's physically piecing together all of the shattered gems from the war to make them whole again so that they can be who they once were, so that they can have life and personhood again. Um, so where once she was using her ability to destroy, she is now using it to heal. Yeah. Um, similarly with Blue, where she seems to be able to affect the emotions of all the gems around her. And when she was grieving with the loss of Pink Diamond, she basically made everyone feel her grief. And now she's using her ability to, you know, lift the emotions of others and make gems happier. So you do kind of see their abilities becoming less of a way that they can oppress the people under them and more as a responsibility that they have in their capacity to serve the other people instead of flooding everyone with her negative emotions and crying blue is responsible for making sure everyone's happy instead of shattering or destabilizing um, yellow diamond is now like a surgeon and a doctor, and is the one who is responsible for putting people back together, literally. Instead of drowning out other voices, White is raising them up. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that at that point, effectively, like the only diamond that doesn't really change the way the powers are used would be Pink Diamond. Although I suppose you can make an argument that towards the end, with Stephen losing control, like does become a more destructive force, whereas Pink Diamond had always been creating these gardens and Pink had been creating gardens, but it did, did seem like there wasn't a ton of like intentionality to it, and that's the same thing with Steven. And what we are seeing at the end is him trying to figure out what his role is, what he wants to do with his life. And, and I think in large part that's going to be him figuring out what his responsibility is. And if, it, if he doesn't have one to the larger society, it's probably because he already discharged it in ending the war. Pink Diamond's role in the Diamond Authority was always to bring them together. She was the one who made them laugh, who made them feel, who who made them more connected and more of people and less of role-filling automatons. Yeah. And Stephen was able to do that and does continue to do that. Like, he reminds them of why they love each other and why they care about other life. Yeah. 
think the only other thing that I wanted to talk about, and there's not unfortunately a good transition to it, is fusions, basically, in like the larger world of the gem society. We talked last week about how they're taboo, and we talked about the caste system earlier, and I just wanted to point out that almost certainly the reason that fusions are stigmatized in that society is because every gem is designed for a particular purpose, and a fusion, you don't know what the fu- what the fusion's abilities or personality is going to be until it happens, so it's an element of unpredictability, which is obviously exactly what an authoritarian, extremely regimented society does not want. It also introduces elements of unknown power that could potentially challenge the diamond authority or the caste systems that are supposed to be above whatever the component gems belong to. I'm wondering if you see parallels in our world with that. Well, I think that probably the uh, most obvious way to get to that point is that fusions aren't actually outlawed in homeworld. It's fusions across gem cuts that's outlawed. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not allowed to mix, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, I think that there's been historically a fairly strong bias against, quote, mixing um, with race issues for that same reason of if you're trying to build a narrative that one group is weaker and one group is stronger, which I don't agree with, just going to make sure that's clear there, then when you start mixing that up, you start getting into claims of loss of purity and questioning, well, you know, what does that mean for this person and what does that mean about the way things really are? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think there's a lot of parallels there in a lot of ways that we have seen in our history, um, like upper classes sort of try and pit groups against one another because if they were to realize that they were all being oppressed by the same people and banded together to oppose that small group of rich white landowners usually or whatever, corporations, whatever whatever the case may be, then they would actually be able to bring the exploitation to a halt and fight for access to resources and greater rights and actual access to the rights that they're being promised. So I think that covers most of the main topics that we wanted to talk about with regards to the societal views in this show. But I think the big question is, what is the larger message about, like, macro society that's in this show? Because, like, last week we were talking about what the most important message in terms of, like, healthy messages for an individual and, like, mental health and things is in the show. What would be the equivalent for this set of topics? Hmm. People kind of suck, but they get better. Can get better. Hmm. See, I think that's a little bit difficult because... I think that what it shows as being the issue with the larger macro systems is that they're larger macro systems and not people-based. Like, the solutions that are presented in the show are often about, you know, and you'll hear Stephen say it a million times, can't we just talk? Mm-hmm. Like, why have we got to fight? If you can get people in a room to talk about it or get Stephen to send out a personal message to everyone and, damn, damn it, he'll speak to every individual who turns up himself. He'll go out and find people. It's about treating everyone as an individual and treating everyone with kindness, even if that's not necessarily what they're going to show you, a la Jasper. I think that's a very... Blindly optimistic. Yeah. I think that's a, like, sentient beings-focused view. I think I would say the bigger message is that the colonial perspective and drive is addictive and destructive and endless. Okay. Because you see the Diamond Authority, we talked about the fact that gems don't actually die 
theoretically there might be some enemy that's shattering them somewhere in the universe, but as far as we know, they just live for millions of years, but they keep thinking they need to make more, and the process for making more requires them to pull so much out of a planet that no organic life can exist on it. And so if they're continuing to need more, which they don't necessarily need, then they're just denuding more and more planets and with no care for the creatures and sentient life that already live there. Right. But I think that what you're suggesting is the problem and what I'm suggesting is the solution that's presented. Maybe. And in my mind, I was thinking that like it's about being kind to everyone and everything. I acknowledge that I did only refer to sentient beings. <laughs> Assuming, of course, that trees aren't sentient, and I'm not convinced. Yeah. I think it's definitely condemning that particular way of operating in the world. Yes. And saying that it's not sustainable and is very destructive. Misguided. Places value on the wrong things. I think it's interesting from a storytelling aspect how they do that, because I think that they do do it through a personal level. The majority of the storyline is about Stephen and his friends and just trying to live their lives and this complex getting in the way. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not presented as, like, these messages that we're talking about are all in the show, but they're not explicitly so, because the show talks explicitly about how it affects people mm-hmm. and from the people's point of view. In terms of the sustainability part environmental messages that I'm talking about, as well as political messages that I'm talking about, I think that a part of how that's really brought together has to do with the visual storytelling, because you both see it in, like we talked about before, how barren the kindergarten is, and how depressing, as you say, on the personal level, it is for Peridot and Amethyst and Stephen when they're unable to get anything to grow there. And that's part of Peridot having a crisis about having been a part of that. About. Mm. She was a kindergartner, not for that one, but it was people in her field that did this, and she has some hope that it could be undone and it can't be. And then seeing Homeworld, I think that was like the big image to really show you the scale of that problem. Yeah. Um, and I think it, that those, the combination of those things really helps you understand like this larger sustainability and environmental like message that they are conveying about the mark that this sort of orientation over time has on an environment, like this sort of resource-hungry political machine. Yeah, I think that's fair. So I think that's a good answer to the big question. I have sort of a two-part bigger question for you about fusion. Okay. So we never see, I don't believe, two different variations of the same cut of gem fuse. We'll see multiple rubies fuse, but they're all red and they just make one big red ruby. Mm -hmm. But we never see, like... Two different quartz soldiers or something. Right. So does that mean that if the diamonds were to fuse themselves together, would they make one really big diamond or would it be a mix of the two? I don't know, but I think if you, if pink and yellow and blue fused, it should make a white diamond. Hmm. I think usually you just get sort of a muddy brown when you try that. But in terms, it's considering like the whole With light, the light thing. Yeah, yeah. because... Her whole thing is that she's the pure light, and then all of the other gems show part of her wavelength. I think she says something like that. Or they're imperfect reflections of her. That would suggest that she'd taken, like, a decent chunk of all of her elements out. So I wonder if that causes any of the weirdness around her and her world. We do see diamond fusion, because Stephen Stephen. fuses with the different ones. Which is interesting because... Not with the other diamonds. Not with the other diamonds, but with the crystal gems. Mm-hmm. 
It's notable that several of those are named after courts. So with Amethyst, that makes a certain amount of sense. But the fact that Rainbow Quartz 2.0 and Rainbow Quartz 1 um, are called that doesn't make a huge amount of sense because there's actually no quartz involved. It does because it's a name. It's not actually... Right. Um, they're basing that on the misapprehension that or, or the illusion that Rose is a Rose Quartz when she's actually a Pink Diamond. I mean, obviously, actually, both members of the Rainbow Quartz knew that it was actually a Pink Diamond and a pearl not a rose quartz and a pearl but other people couldn't know that so they had to refer to it as something that included a quartz i guess i suppose that there's not another quartz that they can fuse with there see what a yeah because fusion's fairly yeah okay i mean that does make sense yeah but you do see a pearl and a ruby fused and one of the off colors is a ruby pearl permafusion Mm. whose name i can't remember but I do think if it was yellow and blue, like, then there should probably be a green diamond who would probably have the powers of both of them. I think you would get a different one. I think it's harder to say with, like, you know, a Jasper and an Amethyst or something because they seem to have all the same abilities, especially considering that even within the same gem, they seem to have different weapons because I think Peridot is impressed when Amethyst has whips seems to imply that not all of them do. Yeah. And we know that rubies don't all have the same one because we see that Eyeball has a dagger and the ruby we know who's part of Garnet has a gauntlet. So within the same type, they don't all have the same weapon. So that's definitely not a distinguishing thing. But they both like Amethysts and Jaspers do like the spin ball thing and are just yeah. generally really strong, etc. So it's not like we see either of them have like elemental powers or something, you know? The other question I have is, we see with some of the fusions, like the gems will appear in the places that they are on the individuals, and one of the rubies that we meet has one of um, their eyes replaced with a ruby. Mm-hmm. If you had one ruby with a left eye as a gem, and one ruby with a right eye as a gem, and they fuse together, would they be able to see? I would assume so. Because the body doesn't actually have a function, it's just a light thing. Like, they mm-hmm. decide what functions it can carry out. Just like Amethyst often decides to have a digestive tract, but she doesn't need to have one. I don't think that they need to have what look like eyes mm. to see. Just like I don't think they need to have what looks like ears to hear. You see the topaz, the topaz that comes with uh, aquamarine to capture human samples the pair have their gems on either ear. And when they're fused, it looks like they're wearing earmuffs because they've got one on each side. And there's not any indication that they can't hear. In fact, they can. It's demonstrated that they can because Lars and Steven don't think that she can hear them. And then she starts crying because, you know, it's so sweet that they care so much about each other. And she's been listening to their conversation the whole time. Yeah, okay. Shall we wrap up? Sure. Okay, so moving on to fun facts. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I was reading some of the things that, um, like interviews with Rebecca Sugar, you know, when the show was wrapping up, about that process of it kind of wrapping up. And one of the things that she said was that when she first found out that the original run of Steven Universe was not going to be uh, renewed for another season, she immediately wrote the song, I Could Never Be Ready, which I thought was really sweet and appropriate. Um, it's the song that Greg sings during a part of an episode where you're seeing a flashback of him taking care of Steven as a baby after Rose has 
disappeared and become part of Stephen. I also thought that was neat. Also, interestingly, she, instead of trying to fight for another season, pushed for a movie and Cartoon Network agreed, but then decided that there was no point to doing a movie unless it was to promote more show. So then authorized a little bit more show to go after the movie, which is weird and TV is strange. It worked out okay. Yes. Another fun fact that I had, um, I was listening to a pod, I think it's the Steven Universe podcast where they often have different members of the cast and crew, including Rebecca Sugar and Cordy and different voice actors and writers come on for different episodes. And there was an interesting discussion about Lars, like post Steven healing him and him becoming alive again, about how it's sort of implied, but not really explored in the show that Lars will die eventually, but his aging is dramatically slowed. Like he has a heartbeat, but it's very, 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 very slow. And he's going to kind of be stable for a long, long, long time. And there's apparently an argument between some of the writers that like one of them thinks that because of the process of becoming sort of undead like this, that Lars can't taste anything, which would be pretty tragic considering that he loves to bake and ends up running a bakery. And like another of the writers vehemently disagrees and i just thought that was interesting is there a reason provided for why he wouldn't be able to taste i think just because his biological processes are like slowed down so much and like he's basically dead just has to chew things for a very long time well i think that the idea is that he's dead and wouldn't have sensation in the same way or something i'm not sure i can't remember that clearly i listened to that episode a while ago so i don't um, see why that would be the one sensation that doesn't work and that's just someone trying to be morbid I mean, I not not the. I forget the rationale. He definitely had one, um, but apparently, it's a bone of contention between him and another writer on the show. Uh, that's fun. They also said that it, Lars is likely to have a somewhat sad future, as everyone he knows grows old and dies around him. So there's that too. Stephen might stay around. Well, yes, other than Stephen. I mean, he he's got gem friends. It's true. He does have gem friends, but. I think um, there's some disturbing questions to be asked about Stephen and Connie's relationship if that continues long term. It kind of depends on how long his development tracks with hers. Like, it might just continue to track with hers and they might grow old together. And then Connie would die at some point and Stephen wouldn't. And maybe he would be old for a long time or maybe at some point he would rediscover his youth. Like, who knows? Or they might become a permafusion and might could. Stay alive that way. I think I remember seeing somebody theorize that Connie's aging must slow or stop while she's fused with Steven because Steven's gem is constantly healing and keeping everything like perfect. Kind of like um, Carrie in, in Legion. Yes, yes. And so, um, like the idea that Connie's lifespan would theoretically be extended by her time fusing with Steven. So that's an interesting idea too. Yeah. That might have made a better, bigger question. Oh well. Wait, I can just ask you as a question and we just cut it in. One of the fun facts that I came across was, um, I mean, I work in a bookstore, so I came across this just as it came out. Um, In October, they brought out a book to coincide with the release of the Steven Universe movie called The Tale of Steven that tells it from, I believe it's, you read it two directions. I can't remember. I didn't read the book. Um, I I, I sort of intended to. I just never got around to it. Um, It's really short. I don't know why I didn't. Anyway, um, (laughs) but what I did notice... What I did notice is that the book is uh, dedicated to trans and gender expensive kids. That's awesome. Is it the tale? Is the tale of Stephen the uh, story that um, Spinell refers to when uh, she's singing about having heard the story? Oh, it's um, 
a retelling of the episode Change Your Mind, the hour-long special that revealed the culmination of Pink Diamond's storyline. Oh, okay. Anything else? No, it was just the one I had. Cool. Do you have any others? I think so. If you've watched the show and don't know who the voice actors are behind some of the fusions of the Crystal Gems, go look that up because it's hilarious. I think Nicki Minaj is one of them. Yeah, Nicki Minaj is the voice of Sugalite, which is why Sugalite has very limited appearances because her voice acting is very expensive. I bet. Uh, I don't think we have any feedback or follow-up this week. Don't think so. I have had some thoughts about some of the other episodes, but I can never remember them when we're actually recording. Okay, so I think we're going to wrap it up here for this week. We'll be back next week with something, probably. You'll have noticed that we've been doing some really cheery episodes recently to make sure everyone's got their spirits lifted up, which is why we've done a feminist series of tales about sex and death and a kid's film about death and uh, hmm, two episodes about a kid's TV show that talk about issues of identity crisis and colonialism and capitalism. Anyway, I hope your spirits are lifted up from that episode. Um, in the meantime, you can find us on social media. Our links are in the show notes below. Uh, you can email us at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. We're happy to hear from you with any ideas, suggestions, questions, or aberrations about the fact that we don't ever post a schedule that we actually keep to. We may post on our social media what we're going to do next week. Uh, we might not. Um, cool. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll join us next week. Shall we get back to uh, colonialism war? Yeah. Well, no, we, sh- we shouldn't do that. That'd be pretty bad for them. <laughs> um, also, we don't have an army which yeah. or vastly superior weapons. Those mm-hmm. are really the two things to help out with those. Well, actually, no, mostly now it should be corporation money. But... Well, money is placeholder for all the other stuff.